0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On. I am your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Dr. Professor, Dr. Professor Christy Ironside. She is an, a professor at McGill University in Canada, and she's the author of the just published Full Value Ruble, The Promise of Prosperity in the Post-War Soviet Union, just out from Harvard University Press. Christy, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: As you know, we were discussing in the green room before, my audience is less oriented towards Russian historians, which is is my background, and more towards people engaged in current finance issues. And Really one of the the dominant topics uh, these days, given Federal Reserve policy, given global global economic crises that we've had over the past several decades, and the intervention of governments in uh, their economies. Is there is just an ongoing discussion and debate fierce debate about the value of currencies alternative currencies theories about uh, monetary theories of of velocity of money of alternative currencies of new technologies enabling alternative currencies the utility of fiat currencies this is the stuff that takes up the wall street journal and bloomberg and my day job i'm not going to say all day long, but a, a good portion of it, and many of the people uh, in the investment world have to, by definition, spend a lot of time on this on this issue. that's why I was so struck and pleased to read your book and find that from a great distance, the Soviet Union in the 1940s and '50s, specifically the '50s, some of the very same debates are being articulated and hashed out, and bureaucrats, the equivalent of Federal Reserve officials or Treasury officials, enterprise leaders, are trying to address some of the very same issues that we find that we're addressing in the economy right now. Now, a lot of people, a lot of my circle of acquaintance would say that's too too, uh, too remote, uh, too far of a bridge in terms of the uh, or the comparisons, but I, it was struck with me. So I really want to have you, and glad to have uh, have you on the show to discuss the problems as mid twentieth century Soviet bureaucrats were dealing with money supply issues. So uh, thank you for writing this book. It's beautifully written. It's it, for a kind of technical Russian history, Soviet history work. It's very easily read and and uh, and well organized. Uh, just a key. A few key chapters. Can you can you start by setting the stage about how the money supply problem uh, was developed? The framework for it comes with the revolution because, in theory, communist society is a very different take on money. But the very specific problems really emerge from World War II as the Soviet Union comes out of World War II.
1: Well, coming out of World War II, the problem is that there's simply too much money in circulation. Uh, so one of the things that they had had to do very early on after uh, the Nazis invade is they essentially turn on the tap. They keep printing money. This is not the first time they've done this. They've been printing money in response to economic crises before. They did this during uh, the first Five Year Plan because you know you've got tons of people coming into industry and so you need to pay their wages. But during World War II, they they just keep printing money. So the money supply quadruples during the war. It, it, it exponentially increases. And then you also have all kinds of problems because, of course, you know as the front has been moving back and forth, you've had you know foreign currencies that are entering into circulation in occupied territories. The Nazis also printed counterfeit rubles in an attempt to wage economic warfare. So you have all of that going on. Um, on top of that, you also have an enormous amount of surrogate currencies that are in circulation because you have effectively a barter economy in large parts of the country. So, you know, people are trading in, you know, in in, in actual food stuffs. they're trading in consumer goods. Um, You also have ration tickets. Uh, So ration cards in, in the Soviet Union, the way they worked was it wasn't that you just got something in exchange for it. It entitled you to pay a subsidized price. But most of the time people were doing this in their workplaces. So it wasn't exactly a kind of market transaction in any meaningful sense. But those ration cards themselves became surrogate currencies because they entitled you to buy things at subsidized prices. So you have all kinds of problems like this that are that are going on after the war and of course, the other thing that's going on in the background, too, is that, you know, the country is devastated economically. It's, it's absolutely devastated. You need to get people to rebuild the economy. You need to motivate them. Um, when when the money has ceased to have any value, it's, it's hard to, be, to view your wages as something that are meaningfully uh, useful in your life. And as they start to scale down some of the coercive tactics that they had put in place to get people to work during the war, they start to go back to money as something that they need to get people to do their jobs, to, you know, put their money in the bank, have confidence in the banks as well, because they had effectively frozen people's savings during the war. So what they're really trying to do by the time we get to 1947, which is roughly when my book kicks off, I start after 45, but really it's 47 um, when they have the currency reform, is they're trying to get people to have faith in the ruble again. They're trying to have people have confidence in the currency, which is the nexus that connects all different parts of this economy and this society.
0: And so it, it's worth stepping back that even the determination that we needed a currency as a mechanism of exchange in order to have a complex modern society was a bit of an ideological leap because in the first few years of the, the Soviet Union, there were notions running about that, well, uh, currency and, and uh, is, is a bourgeois notion and we'll, we'll deal with it somehow or other. And there were no specifics, but that that Stalin, it turns out, was was of a more practical nature and said, no, actually, this, this is a tool that we need. Thank you. For all the ideological dreaming, but this is a practical tool that we need to manage a complex society.
1: I believe he actually said, as a direct quote, that it was anti Marxist stupidity to think that you could do away with money anytime soon. Uh, so, I mean, he had been kind of hammering on this from the mid 1920s, well before he was actually officially in power. So, as you say, right after the revolution, uh, you know, Lenin initially was one of the people who thought that money could be done away with. He includes this in one of the very first programs. Uh, but very early on, they realized this is impractical and uh, in the 1920s, they start to stabilize the currency. There's a currency reform in 1924. He, he was sort of involved maybe toward the very, very beginning of it, but mostly it was after he had died. And by 1925, when Stalin's becoming more of a player, he comes along and, and his big intervention into this discussion is to say that we can use money as communists, we can make it be something that does something for us, it can have value in our society. It doesn't automatically make us less communist if we're still using money. Money can have it can it can have value for us. It, he calls it a tool of, of uh, bourgeois governments that can be used to give grist to our mill. We can do it now. And so from his perspective, there's no real discussion left to be had, especially you know, by the time he's really solidified his leadership by the end of the 1920s. There's no discussion anymore about doing away with money. That's something that's off in the distant future you know, when communism is achieved. For now, what we need is a strong currency that has real value, and that is to say, that has purchasing power in workers' hands, because without that, we're not going to motivate the kind of labor we need from people to build communism in the society.
0: So, fast forward 20 years and a devastating war, and there are a lot of paper rubles circulating, not enough goods. And a sense that the ruble isn't worth much because you can't buy anything with it, and so the the regime embarks on a series of measures involving price, involving taxation, involving savings banks and lotteries and forced government bonds and so forth, uh, in a constant effort, as well as manufacturing and rebuilding the economy, in a constant effort. Surprise, surprise, to for for people involved in current uh, debates to get the right balance of money supply. velocity velocity and goods. And they never really get it, but they're constantly working at it and they're they're approaching it from all perspectives. So the first chapter you have fascinating is on prices and mandated lower prices every spring. Can you discuss how that's going to help fix this problem?
1: I mean, one of the really big problems coming out of the Second World War was that they had had to raise prices to match the currency supply. So they had actually been trying to do this well before the Second World War. This is a policy of theirs from the mid-1930s when they had sort of a, what, what they call kind of like the three good years, when things seemed like they were going pretty well at, mid, at mid-decade. Uh, but of course, by the end of the decade, They had to put a lot of resources into militarization. They pulled that back from the consumer economy. And so during World War II, they have to rescind this promise altogether. So prices go up exponentially, even um, though we have rationing, because you have the price system splits. So you have commercial prices, which are not necessarily market prices per se, but which are substantially higher than the ration prices, which are those subsidized prices that I mentioned that you need to use your ration ticket uh, to get to buy something with. So prices have gone up enormously. And, uh, and there's a sense that that the connection between supply and demand between, you know, between the sort of the costs of producing a thing and what it's being sold at its exchange value, everything has become very frayed by the war. The war has kind of severed those connections. So they have a currency reform in, in 1947 when they revalue the currencies. So, you know, 10 old rubles are now worth one new ruble and it's paired with a price reform. So they they abolish rationing and they unite the prices. This is how they describe it. Those commercial and those ration prices, but they unite them at a level that's substantially higher than the ration levels. So they're trying to get people to, you know, to, to, purchase things at these new prices, but they're still very high because wages have not been affected. Wages are left the same. So they have price reductions every year, starting in the late 1940s through 1954. And these get turned into a sort of holiday. You know, it's, it's usually on the first of March or the first of April, which is also coincidentally when people would have their new norms, their production norms be announced. So it's like you have to work harder, but you get things cheaper. Uh, so they announce these new prices and it would be like 50 percent off certain categories of goods or 10 percent off flour or things like this. And, um, and they do this every year in an attempt to try to bring the prices down so that people can afford things because the problem of course is um, because goods are too expensive they're producing much too much of certain things which they then have to warehouse they, they literally warehouse those things they kind of put them in and a what bed.
0: were the examples are these like 10,000 pound screws that can't be sold <laughs> or these th- these would not have been shoes. Oh, or, or, or basic goods, they have to have been goods that, that, because of the inefficiency of the system, would have been yeah. hard to sell anyhow, and high value so goods, not- presumably.
1: Not food products, per se, because those are always in shortage, but things like caviar, for example, there are a massive stack of caviar. And the most shocking one is vodka. They have an insane quantity of vodka on their hands coming out of the Second World War because it's simply so much cheaper to produce your own samogon, right? You just get some bread and sugar and, and you do that. And so they have lots and lots of state produced alcohol on their hands. They can't export most of this at this point. They don't have good export arrangements yet. And so they and because the price is too high, they simply cannot move the product. So they're, what they're trying to do behind the scenes, so they present all of this as being about improving people's living standards, getting the prices down so that your wages go further. Uh, that's the public facing aspect of this campaign. But behind the scenes, they're trying to calibrate supply and demand with, you know, with the actual supply of things that they have. So a lot of it is about moving products that are already in, in oversupply. So things like vodka, another one is wristwatches, things like this. Uh, and also trying, you know, it, because there's a, there's a, always a kind of disconnect between what gets produced in a year when you have a, a system that's organized around staccanovism, around overproduction. And so, you know, if you're trying to hit very high targets and prove that you are an excellent factory manager and you can do better than what you've been expected to do, well, then you've created products that there's no demand for, which then has fallout for the rest of the economy, because then those extra goods either sit there and are not sold, or they kind of walk out the back door to the black market where they're sold for totally different market prices. So it's an incredibly complex calculation trying to balance supply and demand in this system. And they're not even really sure. You know, In 1947, when they, when they revalued the currency, it's partly because they don't even know how much money is in people's hands. Most of this money is outside of their field of vision. They it, they're holding it in you know mayonnaise jars buried in the lawn, you know. So so trying to print to figure out how much to print money in a year is really complicated when you don't know where that money is and what it's doing all of the time, and so they're they're constantly trying to to, to balance these things and it's very very difficult.
0: Your your colleagues maybe from several generations ago from Hyde Park in Chicago, where you got your PhD, would have a relatively simple answer to this, that there isn't a market providing proper signals for price and production, and instead of a bunch of uh, bureaucrats doing sort of silly things like staccanovism to, uh, and for our our listeners, staccanovism is high publicity overproduction as a publicity stunt. Motivational tool. <laughs> Motivational tool. So, uh, but it doesn't help from a price and signal perspective. Almost everything that you've said they're trying gets in the way of prices and signals and markets functioning. And you know that would be the 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 Friedman answer, the Chicago School of Economics, maybe not the Chicago School of History Department of History, but the Chicago uh, School of, of uh, the Booth School of Business answer to to what's going on. Uh, is that uh, you know they're lowering prices when they should be raising prices or they shouldn't be messing with prices and trying to let the, the markets them. So, but in any case, their efforts are consistent over a long period of time. Every year, lowering prices in theory, but not necessarily... That in some sense creates more of a problem because there's still no, there's still not market clearing prices. And if anything, they're making unavailable goods cheaper and they're still unavailable. So how, you know, at a certain point this stops because they come to realize that or they move on to the next project.
1: Well, Stalin dies, which helps. Uh, So he dies in 1953 and they run the last one of these price cuts in 1954 uh, because it had already been in the works. And it's also the last one. It's kind of seen as a sort of symbolic gesture. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that they were able to do it at all, just to back up to your previous point for a second, is that they were exploiting the peasantry super heavily at this point. You know, cheaper food is coming from the peasants who are already working virtually for free on collective farms. They, they owe a certain amount of free labor toward the farm. And so they, as long as they can keep exploiting the peasantry, exploiting agriculture, they can keep putting food prices in particular down. But by the time we get to Stalin's death, there's, there's the makings of a pretty bad... Famine, potentially, there's a, it's certainly an agricultural crisis underway. It's quite visible that the countryside is extremely depressed and they know they can't do this anymore. So that's part of the reason they call it off is because you can't keep subsidizing things, as you say, that don't exist, that like making them cheaper, but you can't buy them. And any sort of excess production they could get out of the countryside, it's it's not there anymore. It's simply not there. Um, The other thing, of course, that they've been trying to do with those prices that I should mention is that they're constantly trying to undercut the market prices. And and when I say market prices, I don't just mean black market prices. I mean, the the agricultural um, farmers markets, the collective farm markets, Which were the last place that you could still sell things on a semi-market basis you had to pay taxes on what you what you earn from that but the peasants you know they work for the collective farm part of the week and then they work on their own plots and they sell things there so those state retail price cuts were an attempt to undercut the market prices there and thereby get the peasantry in line and uh, and and sort of force them to stop producing so much on their individual plots that then was getting sold on the market so they're in dialogue with market prices but they're not you know they're not undercutting them really in terms of supply either because the peasants know exactly how much has been produced they made it
0: So a bit it's a bit of a miscommunication and again I kept on wondering <laughs> as I was going through your book that uh, increased production of uh, goods and services that people want would have fixed this problem fairly quickly. and yet at no point does that I mean your 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 tale is not about the manufacturing side. It really is about the bureaucratic side of trying to tweak prices and so forth. but th- that kept on being the answers. I mean, if too much money, there is a solution for that the right you know to, uh, the government, comes up with other solutions, which we'll get to in a moment. But they they, they still, it, it appears, even though Prosperity, you point out that in the late 50s, there's the Soviet Union's doing a lot better than it had been 10 years earlier, uh, but that they still haven't got you know, the, the right goods in the right places to sop up the money supply. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yeah. I mean, part of the problem is that they still prioritize heavy industry. They produce producer goods. Everything is about expanding the the economy when we're talking about things like coal and steel and chemicals, things like this. The light industry sector of the economy is extremely under focused on. They're never concerned with this. Uh, That's part of it. And so they would have had to have shifted resources substantially and, and reoriented the economy to be more on a consumerist basis, but they weren't willing to do that. They were quite skeptical of consumerism as an organizational principle of an economy. And uh, and they and they and they did not they, they they at that point were still quite convinced that they needed to still build up that heavy industrial sector and also the military sector too, because sure. you have the onset of the Cold War. That's where the priority had to be. So you're right, they could have put more they could have put more resources, more manpower into making consumer goods, but there wasn't an ideological or from their perspective, a practical reason to do it.
0: So speaking of ideology, one of the things that's fascinating is, is, uh, you know, we're talking a great deal in our society, in Western society right now about income inequality and income distribution. And it's easy enough to say, well, the Soviet Union, they kind of had some sort of faux equality. It was much, much flatter. And that that may be true or something like that. But what's fascinating is that you have a whole chapter on the fact that uh, levels of income were not... Random. It was an extremely complicated, historically rich problem or issue to work out that they, Soviet policymakers in the 1950s, had to deal with high wage workers, low wage workers, and trying to get this right again as part of their effort to to get the amount of money supply and goods. Uh, at least a little bit closer, and part of it was, you know how do we bring some people up but not put more money supply into the economy? But we have these very high priced workers who have been privileged ideologically for the last couple decades. That's really hard to let go. It was a ma- it was hard. It, it is a hard puzzle to figure out.
1: It was a nightmare, <laughs> and they never quite figured it out for being honest. Uh, they uh, I mean part of it was that by the time we get to the post- Stalin period, uh, there's an enormous amount of income inequality in the society. Stalin had had removed some of the the more ideological caps on income that had been in place in the 1920s. Uh, So in particular, when we're looking at the party, he got rid of this thing called the party maximum, which basically limited politicians' salaries to that of a skilled worker. So they weren't going to get paid more than them. He gets rid of this. And after this, all kinds of uh, white collar workers, party workers, intelligentsia, their salaries go sky high. Um, and he also privileges workers in heavy industry. So, again, those coal workers, you know, it's not, a, it's not a, an accident that Alexei stakhanov the Staganovite, is a coal worker, right? It, it's, it's that industry. So he privileges those people, but he leaves large swaths of the workforce behind. So you've got people who are earning extremely low wages by the 1950s. They can barely afford anything. And you've got people who are earning lots of money that they can't spend. And both groups feel aggrieved, but for different reasons. And so they're trying to come up with wage policy reforms that will try to target both groups without bringing wages down and reducing the incentive to work hard and to enter the lines of work that they prioritize. But also, they don't want people to be so poor that they can't afford bread, they can't afford basic things. So it's an incredibly complex thing. And of course, they they also don't want to introduce too much more money into circulation. Because if you just raise wages, then that just promotes inflation, which is, you know, a dirty word for the Soviets. They never call it inflation, but they, of course, have inflation in this society and in this economy.
0: In, in they can't simply raise the wages of the lower paid employees because it would make the core problem that's running through your book, which is too much money and not a sufficient amount of sup- goods and services chasing that money, a la Milton Friedman, but uh, too much money. They can't simply do that. But at the other end, if they bring down the wages of the high profile uh, classes of employees, groups of employees, you refer to that as leveling. That They're trying to get income redistribution without leveling. That turns out it was a hard hard trick in the 1950s and policymakers right now in a very different context, and I'm not suggesting they're the same context, but I'm just pointing out the semantic terms are very similar and some of the theoretical uh, factors are are very similar. So that's why I think their wrestling with these issues is, is so important. Similar theme in regard to what you refer to as socialist security. We just refer to it as social security, at least in the u s. the social safety net. Again, an effort to try to create a social safety net, but to not put more any more money in the system, cause money in this too much there was already too much money in the system. Can you describe some of the the social safety net issues that they were wrestling with?
1: Yeah, it's uh it's kind of shocking. It shocked me actually how late it, it was that they had a, a universal pension system in the Soviet Union. They really they tried from the early twenties onward. But it's not until we get to nineteen fifty-six when you have the pension reform under Khrushchev that you have a more universal system. And part of the problem, again, was exactly this. They didn't want to introduce too much more money into circulation that would end up in the hands of sort of quote unquote unproductive hands, right? In the in the hands of people who are not adding more value into the economy. So they struggle with this. It takes them a very long time. It actually starts under Stalin. The the effort to reform the system starts in the late 1940s, and Khrushchev in many ways just benefits from the fact that they kind of dithered for a while and couldn't figure out how to solve this problem. And so when he comes along and he announces this pension reform, it's been building on many years of this discussion going on at higher levels. So they they raise what what they do with pensions is they raise the minimum pensions, which by that point were extremely low. They were uh, you know not at all connected to the cost of living. They had certainly lost any connection they once had. To uh, to average industrial wages in part, it's it's the problem with pensions in any system, right, where you you get your pension assigned at a certain level or it represents money that you've paid into the system, but you have inflation. And so the value of that pension isn't the same 20 years later. Right. Unless you've had cost of living adjustments, you know, unless you have an invested pension. The Soviet system did not believe in having people invest in their own pensions. Your pension was very explicitly something you got from the government in exchange for your labor. Mm -hmm. And to the present day, it's actually very difficult in Russia to convince people to pay into it. Retirement investments, because there's still this tradition of thinking of a pension as something that comes at the end of your life from the government. Right. So that's a separate question altogether. But but they really struggle to do this. And in the end, Khrushchev runs ahead with this program where they're going to raise all of the pensions. But it does exactly the thing that they've been trying to avoid for some time now, which is introduce a lot more money into circulation that isn't backed by goods. So now pensioners are doing slightly better than they had been, and and it did it did affect people's living standards. I won't say it didn't, but it exacerbated the underlying problem, which was there's still too much money in circulation and not enough to spend on it.
0: So towards the end, the government has come comes up, and throughout and towards the end comes up with a bunch of ways to try to sop up the excess money supply they have taxes which is an interesting notion in a communist society or supposedly communist society that there would be income taxes it's a fascinating uh part of your work there are government loans which everyone is obligated to uh to support Uh, in the united states you know savings bonds and war bonds but they the extent to which you had savings bonds or war bonds are nothing like the basically obligatory uh government campaigns in in the soviet union and where you basically hand over your money supply to the government and in theory, you're going to get something way down the road. And as a practical matter, you either got nothing or its value was de minimis. So it's another way of soaking up money. And then finally, the, the kind of the interesting one that generates a lot of nice anecdotes is the lottery. The, the, uh, for a society that's supposed to have pretty sober economics, it turns out, you know what works really well? A lottery uh, we have the same issue in uh, Western societies now where lotteries are for the mathematical people who are not thinking <laughs> mathematically but they're awfully popular and governments are incredibly dependent upon them because for all the highfalutin economics a lottery works better and so let's let's talk you know if you can provide an overview of some of the mechanisms by which at the end of the day The government found, well, nothing else is really working. Not nothing else, but it's hard to get the price mechanism right. It's hard to get the labor mechanism right. At the end of it, we're just going to soak up money in these other ways.
1: So you have lotteries and savings accounts. And savings accounts are the one that they really like because it seems maybe a little bit more... uh disciplined, it builds character. There's all kinds of funny propaganda videos and propaganda posters about how putting your money in the savings bank is the correct, you know, socially appropriate thing to do as a builder of communism and all of this. But it is interesting that they turned to lotteries because they initially banned them. They, they in 1918, right after the revolution, they banned them as bourgeois gambling. They think that lottery is, you know, the the Russian aristocracy was perceived as inveterate gamblers, uh, some of them were, but uh, there was a stereotype. And so they, they banned gambling, they banned lotteries, and very quickly on, they realized that this is totally impractical. So you have a series of these lotteries in, that start in the 1920s that are run by voluntary associations. The state never totally figures out how to run one of its own, there, there are kind of logistical reasons why it's difficult for them to do it. And then during World War II, they start having more lotteries, like state lotteries uh, that are actually on the basis of those obligatory bonds. So believe it or not, you subscribed for a portion of your wages to go into lottery tickets, which uh, is objectively insane. <laughs> you, would, you would maybe get some of that money back in the form of prizes. That you also had goods prizes, too. They weren't entirely uh, money-based lotteries. Uh, so they, they start this. They then, after the war, end those. But when they get rid of those obligatory bonds in 1957, which they had been using since the first five-year plan as a way of sopping up excess cash, as you said, so basically just to back up for a second, you would have to give one month's salary, the equivalent of one month's salary to these savings bonds, which were themselves lottery tickets because they were premium bonds. So the serial numbers entered into the lottery, you get back some of the money in the form of prize winnings, or you might win the chance to get all your money back early. Um, These are perpetually revalued. They're converted three or four times over in this period. But by the time you get to 1957, the Soviet government owes its own population almost 260 billion rubles on this, which is just there's no way that they can give them back that money. That is a tidal wave of cash. It's just going to destroy everything. So they effectively have to confiscate it again. And they do that in a way where they postpone paying back those bonds and then they bring back a lottery that you don't have to pay people back on. So you just have standard lottery tickets where, you know, you pay three Kopecks to get a lottery ticket or you often get it as change. This was a sort of funny quirk of Soviet society that they had such shortages of coins that they often would give you back your change in lottery tickets, which people didn't want, but they often got it anyway. And so you might win something from your change. But, uh, so they bring these lotteries back and they're around up until the end of the Soviet period. Um, And they, you know, you could win a refrigerator. Sometimes you could even win an apartment. But this was a a good way of getting this money out of circulation, and they don't have to pay people the money back.
0: So the the, the revaluation of the currency in 1961 is a way to diminish the value of those obligations back to the population by lo- because they they did did they change the the denominator for the amount on their balance sheet, or did they just leave it so that they were suddenly owed the population one tenth as much as they used to.
1: Now, that's a really good question, because it's been really hard to get archival files on that. <laughs> so I, in principle, the, the currency reform in 61 affected everything in, so, in Soviet society, unlike the 47 one, where it didn't touch uh, wages, it just, it, it just, it didn't touch wages and prices, it just touched the currency in circulation. So in principle, everything was scaled down. But there was a wide scale belief that they actually did this because they, they gained a lot through the rounding. Because they they brought everything down, so now you know if you're if you were earning 700 rubles a month, you're now earning 70 rubles. But then that means that the COPEC, basically the cent of the society, matters a lot more, and there simply isn't units of, of currency to, ex, to express values in. And so things get rounded in odd ways. And so there's there was a perception that this was one of the things that they did was this was a way of downscaling their obligations. It was a way of get, of underpaying people pensions and wages and things like this. Um, they, they never admitted to it, but that that was the perception.
0: Your book really, as you said, bookends uh, 47 and, and 61, The Currency Reforms. But you do suggest that Uh, All of these experiments is kind of wear down uh, Khrushchev and specifically wear down uh, the other members of the central committee's patience with Khrushchev uh, because they're kind of throwing a lot of things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And again, they're not really using price signals. We discussed how in the early 1960s, temporary, in in your book and elsewhere, temporary uh, experiments with actual price signals leads to unrest uh, in in 1962, which doesn't help Khrushchev's uh, uh, tenure and again, I know your book is not about the demise of the Soviet Union, but it 's implied that they never really figured this stuff out. Is that a fair you know fair summary of your of your view
1: yeah I, I would I would argue that that this wore people down over time, not being able to consistently spend your money, not knowing if it was going to have value. Uh, acquiring savings that had no value, that you know, acquiring bonds that were consistently revalued. Brezhnev brings those bonds back in a certain way. You you had this other category of, of the bonds that was technically liquid, but he brings those back and then he revalues those a bunch of times as well. So people are constantly losing their savings in the society. It has to have occurred to them at some point that there was no point to do it. You know, that, that what's the point in acquiring all this money that you can't spend? Uh, so I think long term, it, it really does wear down people's support for communism. Um, and and over time, they they don't really find a way to solve this problem, but they're able to kind of patch up some of the holes in this economy because they start to have income from oil sales internationally. You know, they have they have sources of of hard currency revenue, they can import goods from the Comic Con. So they, there are all kinds of ways that they're trying to do this um, that sort of maybe paper over some of the problems temporarily. But by the time we get to the 1980s, it's not possible to do that anymore. You know, people have acquired a lot of savings, they can't spend economic growth has hit virtually zero Um, and when they start to have more honest discussions about all of this the whole thing kind of it blows the lid off and so I think long term the inability to give money real value or real consistent value in the society because one of the things that I do want to emphasize is that you know depending on who you were in the society your money had more or less value where you had access to certain stores or you know you were tapped into certain you know private black markets things like this um, but for the vast majority of people, you know, they acquired a lot of money they couldn't spend and that had to have undermined their faith in Soviet power.
0: Yeah. So the, a, a point you've made in some prior discussions about this is that uh, it was a sign of stature in the Soviet Union, the late Soviet Union, not necessarily in your book, but in the late Soviet Union, that you didn't actually need money, that you needed connections because everyone had money. It was just it couldn't buy anything. The goods weren't available, but exactly. uh, that uh, people who were well-connected, had access to goods in, in the mid nineteen eighties when I was in the Soviet Union, uh, we were discussing software. This would have been the early nineties. a uh, so, software package, and I said, you know, asked him how he got it or how he bought it, and he just said to me, ni pakupa it. <laughs> it. That is, in Russia, you don't buy it. It is brought to you. And uh, that is, money was not relevant. It was connections to get that little piece of software. It was probably an early version of WordPerfect or Excel Microsoft or something Word. like that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it mattered, the connections. And that was part of the failing of the system that, uh, in the end, they never really got the price signal goods mechanism correct, because for all these efforts and all these efforts, because people were still operating outside of the system to purchase goods and services. So I think fascinating story. Christy, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. The, the book, again, for people who are not Russian or Soviet specialists, I, I do encourage you to take a look at the book. Uh, it, it's very well written. It's not very long. There are a lot of footnotes, but the text itself is very easily read. It's super organized in terms of these issues of, of labor and taxation. It's very very neatly done. The book is a full value ruble, the promise of prosperity in the post-war Soviet Union. Uh, Christy Ironside of McGill University, thank you so much for, for being a, a guest on the show.
1: Thank you.